there have been a range of issues which have basically uh, bubble wrapped, so you can't ever challenge them. And as I said, there's a suite of opinions. We kind of know, you know, you can't say that on climate, you can't say that on race, you can't say that on uh, the women and gender question, you can't say that on identity politics. And that is the end of democratic discussion. It's the end of debate if you have that as your outcome, because unless you can say, but what about this? What about that? Then how on earth um, can you have uh, critical thinking, any kind of enlightenment, and how will you ever change? Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Claire Fox, a writer, broadcaster, member of the House of Lords and founder of the Academy of Ideas. Claire talks to us about encouraging debate and free thinking in the next generation. The university students and the young, in, uh, you know, as a generation, um, have been socialised by my generation and generations after me into believing that certain ideas are harmful and that the most important value in society is safety, not uh, democratic engagement or not debate. And the importance of free speech despite the risks. If you genuinely believe in free speech, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. And I think that my attitude to some of the uh, behaviour on social media, whilst I find it distasteful and unpleasant, is that I know it's what I have to put up with in order to have a potentially free open square. Claire tells us why she accepted the title Baroness Fox of Buckley, despite calling for the House of Lords to be abolished. My views are no more valid than anyone else's. And if I can, if I can use being in the House of Lords to, to kind of, you know, try and reflect the views of people who will never have the opportunity that I have to say that, then all to the better. And how when it comes to the environment, even the most old-fashioned of peers are all in on net zero. In the House of Lords, it's extraordinary. Um, it's like sitting in a kind of Extinction Rebellion meeting half of the time because there's so many people in the House of Lords who are enthusiastic about environmentalism. I mean, they never shut up about it. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Claire Fox, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Good to be here. So you founded the Academy of Ideas in 2000. Can you tell us a bit about what inspired you to start the organisation and what its mission is? It was a recognition, I think, that the public square was becoming increasingly fraught in the sense that there was a, the beginnings of that very censorious climate, a, a sense of orthodoxies that you couldn't challenge. And also that politics was, at the time, and we have to remember that this was with the Tony Blair government, was becoming quite technocratic. People were boasting that they didn't believe in ideology any longer. And so political debate was also quite anodyne and drab and technical. And we felt that there was a space for having a lively, engaged political conversation. So we set it up to do that. And it's just, it takes different forms, but that's what we've stuck with that mission. Sadly, we need it more now than we did then because thing, that the trends that we, we recognised then have become more profound, more challenging. One of the big things your academy does is the Battle of Ideas Festival, um, by far the most name-dropped event by guests we've had on this show. Can you tell our viewers what the Battle of Ideas is all about? So it, it's our flagship event um, in as much as that we would have monthly events all around the country and so on but this is one place where we bring everyone together and it is a, an attempt at creating the public square it's a weekend festival every year in october and we have um approximately 100 panel discussions with 400 speakers and then you know over 3,000 attendees mm -hmm. and part of its remit is to have at least half of the time of every discussion given over to the audience. So it's very much a kind of conversational format. There's not, the idea is that whilst the panellists are important and they, they know their, uh, their subjects and they're invited to speak for a reason, they still only get five or seven minutes, even if they're you know, world famous authorities. Um, because as I say, the emphasis is on them kick-starting a conversation with an audience and really trying to get to grips with the uh, issues of the day. The other thing about it that people should know is, people will say to me, what's the theme this year? Well, there's, no, there's never a theme for the festival. 
We try, however, to cut across all disciplines. So there might well be a strand of debates on education, a strand of debates on the economy, a strand of debates on science, a strand of debates and discussions on the arts and, and, and so on and so forth. If anything, it's to uh, challenge the notion that people are in their kind of professional silos, you know, that all the scientists meet on one day and all the artists meet on another, to recognise that a lot of the uh, regressive trends that we're concerned about cut across those disciplines. And so it creates a sense of solidarity. People realise that, oh, you know, it's not just in science that this is happening, it's happening over there as well. It also gives people uh, an opportunity to develop a certain autodidact uh, uh, aspect in their lives, which is to say, oh, I don't know anything about poetry, so I'm going to go to the discussion on poetry and learn something, as well as following issues that you might be more obviously interested in. The people I know who, who've been to it, they said it broadened their mind because you're getting different sides of an argument rather than just uh, one kind of focused side. Of course, that's, that's an important point because we don't want to create an echo chamber. That's one of the uh, issues that we, we want to be an antidote to echo chambers. So we do try and has, have as many different voices as possible. Now, not in a box ticking session, you know, how diverse can we be? But we don't just want four people who are going to agree with each other. The idea is not to have a formal debate where it's for and against or people diametrically opposed or to be immature about debate and discussion by sort of assuming that there's a kind of black and white. But on the other hand, to recognise that there are real differences of opinion and nuances within debates and discussions. And so to try and draw those out so that the audience in that conversation can think, you know, I think I agree with this person more than that person. They're going to have heard views that they wouldn't otherwise hear. And we're not patting ourselves on the back or each other on the back at how right we are, but really setting uh, our panellists and the audience challenges, saying, well, how do you deal with this? You know, if you, if you for example, uh, don't agree with cancel culture, should you be cheering when somebody like Diane Abbott uh, is cancelled for her undoubtedly anti-Semitic views, but is that, you know, should, should we be a bit, at least stop and pause and not just think, ah, cancel somebody I disagree with? Those kind of moral dilemmas and um, going beyond the headlines and the sound bites, I think, is what we're interested in. If we look at what happened uh, during COVID, where people that didn't follow the science uh, had quite a rough ride, it feels similar with the, the green agenda, really. Do you think we're in an era where having kind of different ideas can be a bit dangerous? Well, I think that there's a, it's as though that we've decided there's a suite of correct opinions. And, you know, the correct opinion on race will be around critical race theory. On the environment will be very much um, that climate change is an existential threat and a physical threat to humanity and humans are to blame for it. And... With COVID, it was very much, you know, this is uh, a set view on the scientific. We, we kept being told the science says, the science says, which actually is a real insult to scientific endeavour because it turns it into a fixed truth, which has never been what science uh, was about. I mean, its virtues are precisely that it questions everything. So we found ourselves in the COVID period, I think, with a particularly problematic time because people were locked in their homes they couldn't go out. It, it, society was closed down. But we did have in 2020, well, it was 2020, I was going to say 2023, but, you know, enjoying that few years, um, we did have access to other opinions because we had the internet. We were able to uh, join virtual communities. And so people started to ask questions, reasonable questions. You know, is it right that we close down all civil liberties in order to deal with the virus? You know, how serious is this virus? Is it affecting everybody? And as soon as people started asking those questions, they were demonised and, you know, delegitimised. And what that did was it, it, it created a, 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 a tyrannical atmosphere where you could not um, investigate the society that you were living in and the, what Parliament was doing, what, what politicians were doing, but also what, what the scientific, uh, uh, you know, dissenters were saying, the people that you might want to explore, all of those things. Anyway... We saw it very intensely then because we were in lockdown, but actually that is the very trend that we were trying to counter when we set up the Academy of Ideas to run the Battle of Ideas because actually 
The environment question has been for some time an issue you couldn't query. Um, I used to do a lot of work with the BBC and I always remember being invited to a seminar in which these senior editorial people said, um, you know, there is no debate on the climate change. We're no longer going to, you know, we're not going to invite people on who are going to query this debate because they're cranks, and, you know, flat earthers effectively. And I pointed out that, um, you know, rather unpopularly at the time that um, I c you can believe in man-made uh, climate uh, change, which actually I do, um, but it doesn't mean that you will all agree on the solutions to it. Mm. So when then there's a political policy decision that says, as a consequence of man-made climate change, we're going to force you to walk, not use your car, or we're going to stop you flying, or we're going to say that there's a kind of eco-austerity where you stop using more energy and that progress is a disaster. I want to be able to challenge that without you saying, oh, you know, what do you know about the science? Anyway, they weren't having it. But there have been a range of issues which have basically uh, bubble wrapped, so you can't ever challenge them. And as I say, there's a suite of opinions. We kind of know, you know, you can't say that on climate. You can't say that on race. You can't say that on uh, the women and gender question. You can't say that on identity politics. And that is the end of democratic discussion. It's the end of debate if you have that as your outcome. Because unless you can say, but what about this? What about that? Then how on earth um, can you have uh, critical thinking, any kind of enlightenment? And how will you ever change? Because dissenting voices are sometimes cranks. It's true. They're talking, spouting rubbish. But dissenting voices are historically those who go against the grain and raise questions that then become the mainstream. And, you know, if you think it's not that long ago, it's not really not that long ago, that the vast majority of people in this country didn't have the vote. So people had to fight for that. That was an unpopular dissenting view that ordinary uneducated people be allowed to decide who rules society. Don't be ridiculous. You know, that was the view. Um, people who said that were considered to be way beyond the pale of uh, polite society. And yet now we take it for granted. So the dissenters in that instance had a point. You're talking about debate. Obviously, this was always a, a feature of a British education. But now looking at our universities, almost half of them don't even have a debating society anymore. What's caused this kind of loss of debate? I think that the um, the sad truth is is that uh, university students and the young, in, uh, you know, as a generation, um, have been socialised by my generation and generations after me into believing that certain ideas are harmful and that the most important value in society is safety, not uh, democratic engagement or not debate or, or free speech. You know, those things are considered old fashioned. You know, to say, I believe in free speech, and they think oh, something dodgy about you, you know, you just want the freedom to spout bigotry, is yeah. the assumption. So, um, some of the cornerstone liberal virtues are no longer considered so in society. And I think there's been a real neglect uh, by uh, those of us who believe in freedom over many years at really cultivating. Uh, you know, um, these ideas for each new generation. In other words, we've taken them for granted. So you assume that you could just say, that's an attack on free speech, that's censorship, and kind of spout a bit of J.S. Mill, and everybody kind of get into line. Whereas now we do that, everybody like looks at you like you're an alien species. You know, what are she talking about? What? Who cares, right? Because the most important thing is that I'm not harmed and that I feel safe and that those disturbing uh, views and come nowhere near me. And... That is a massive culture change. But as I say, I don't want to get into blaming Generation Snowflake. I think that uh, rather dispiritingly, uh, those young people are often ventriloquizing uh, the, the prejudices of older generations. They've been socialized into seeing the world that way. And they've also not familiar with the alternative arguments. People have not just been complacent, but they've been cowardly. So you know, it's like, don't rock the boat. So, you know, I believe in free speech. Of course, I think that the uh, that the that um, there should be open discussion on critical race theory. A lot of it's nonsense. And, you know, I want to be, but but I'm not going to cause a fuss, you know. And, and you're a senior professor or you're the vice chancellor of a university. Don't let's touch it. Let's hope it'll go away. And what that's allowed is it to become internalised and embedded within institutions. 
And that's a very dangerous situation that we're now in. So people who believe in debate and free speech are on the back foot. And they don't quite know how to behave in relation to that. Um, at the Academy of Ideas, we set up actually during lockdown, we started bringing out a series of pamphlets called Letters on Liberty. And they're just short, you know, two and a half, three thousand word um, pamphlets in the old pamphleteering tradition of just read this and use it to stimulate a discussion. And it's um, reflections on freedom on any number of different things from uh, uh, what's happening in education itself, but it, um, you know, the freedom to drive. Uh, the, we've got we've got some coming up on on mental health, um, whether that's kind of a, 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 a kind of imprisoning thing that people see mental illness everywhere. All of the anyway, a, a wide range. We've got I, my colleagues will kill me because I can't remember any of them. But there's a wide range of them. But the reason why the point is the motivation for producing those and publishing those pamphlets was a recognition on our part, with with a certain degree of um, humility in a way that we needed to remake the arguments for freedom. You know, that you, each and every issue had to be rethought for. You know, and we had to rethink. You can't just repeat in a dogmatic fashion the old laws of, oh, we need freedom of speech. I mean, the philosophical uh, work on this has been immense, and of course you're not going to throw it out. But you have to make your own arguments as well for why freedom matters. So that's what we've tried to do. and. I'm afraid that that work is at a low, lowly stage and it's not happening widely enough, I think. You're also doing some work on encouraging debate. So one of the things that we wanted to really be um, clear about was that we, because it's not a spontaneous activity, that you'd understand the importance of discussion and debate, that that's something that we could educationally introduce. So we have a debating competition for six formers um, called Debating Matters, and its emphasis is very much on substance, not style. So it's not just kind of clever rhetorical debating. And actually, you were saying about debating societies at universities. You know, uh, there are lots of debating societies at universities, but they've often got nothing to do with free speech. They're very formal, you know, yeah. they enter into competitions. They're kind of like a bit indifferent as to the content. Whereas our emphasis in Debating Matters is very much on the content. It's now organised as an educational charity by my colleague Mo Lubbock and, and, and the, the, the six formers that get involved have often never realised that there's two sides to an argument, you know, and we give them lots of reading material so that they can go, oh, I've just read four very good articles persuasively saying this side of the debate's correct, but actually there's another four articles that are very well written persuasively arguing the opposite. So maybe I have to think for myself, it's not just, uh, uh, it's not straightforward. So we do that. Um, and another initiative is Living Freedom, and that's uh, an initiative for 18 to 30 year olds, which is um, uh, encouraging a, a greater engagement with the history and philosophy of freedom and why it's relevant and how it's relevant today. Introducing people educationally into where what freedom's roots are. And so there's a, a summer school, a three day summer school um, in June, uh, July time, uh, which we invite people to apply for, in which we have guest lecturers talking through those ideas, gives people a sense of solidarity. There's about 60, 70 of them coming from all around the country. They have had to apply. So there's a kind of network of living freedom alumni now who are kind of, we hope, the, 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 the vanguard of a new uh, fight back against some of these uh, illiberal, censorious uh, um, ideas. And we're also doing what you can learn for seminars what you can learn from seminars with some of the great philosophers, looking at what they stand for. What you know, what's who is John Locke? What does he mean? You know, what what did Milton say? Why is Milton relevant today, hundreds of years after he wrote uh, his his ideas? And so, that's our contribution. What we're trying to encourage in today's society, the kind of push to silence certain voices has become the norm, really, especially amongst young adults as a very outspoken advocate of free speech, have you ever been cancelled yourself? Well, it's interesting because I have actually recently had an experience of being cancelled. But it, I think it, it shows you that it's not so straightforward. So I was invited by uh, the Royal Holloway University Debating Society to talk about the importance of debate. I mean, you can't get more, you know, it's just such a, a, a non-controversial, uh, you know, invitation. 
But behind the scenes and unbeknownst to me, the debating society had to jump through an awful lot of hoops, safeguarding hoops where they were checking me out. And this is the student union were demanding this. And the university authorities had to be informed that I was coming and they did this big audit on me. Anyway, I managed to pass that, which was very good. But as soon as the debating society put up the posters announcing that I'd been given the, you know, I, I'd got a clean bill of health, um, certain student societies objected, and they objected on the basis that I was transphobic, which I, of course, I'm not. And they used as evidence some of my tweets, one of which was um, that I'd retweeted a Ricky Gervais clip, um, which is, you know, I kind of felt almost insulted that they'd cancelled me for something that I'd retweeted rather than one of my brilliant, brilliant speeches that I've given over the years. Um, and, the and what happened was that the debating society then got hauled before the student union and kind of told that they ought to cancel the event. And they came under an enormous amount of pressure, bullying effectively, and told that uh, it would make uh, uh, students feel unsafe, their reputation would be damaged, they'd be seen to have been bringing a hate monger onto campus. So it wasn't a straightforward cancellation, was it? It was, a, it was and so eventually the debating society committee panicked and just a few days before I was due to speak, they said, we can't do this now. And we're really sorry, but the student union just giving us too much grief. And we believe in free speech, but... And I felt really sorry for those young people because they had asked me in good faith. Now, I could say, oh, I've been cancelled, I'm the victim of this, but I have a lot of platforms, right? I, I'm, I'm here doing this, I'm in the House of Lords, I, I, I write articles. I mean, I'm not complaining that my voice isn't heard. I mean, people are fed up of hearing it. Um, and consequently, people misunderstand cancel culture because it wasn't that I was cancelled. What was actually cancelled there was the freedom for a student society to decide who they wanted to listen to. Yeah. Right. That they'd made the decision to invite me. I get invited to speak at a lot of things. I mean, a lot of the time I'm like going, "Oh, I haven't got time. I've got no time in my diary." I, 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 I'm not going to complain or whinge about that. Um, I'm going to go and speak at the. Swindon Literary Festival on um, next Friday and um, there's been a newspaper campaign to uh, get me cancelled saying that the, they shouldn't have invited me that again that I'm and people you know people writing in saying I've got vile views why is that woman been invited to the city is a waste of taxpayers money now as it happens the organisers of the festival have just said well you know it's we have lots of people speaking she wrote a book called I find that offensive we've asked her to come and speak about it end of, you know, you can put up with it, which is which is to their credit. But a lot of people under that kind of pressure would just quietly either uh, um, sort of say it's not worked out, or I, I, I found this quite a lot, which is if I get invited onto uh, um, TV, sometimes before I've even opened my mouth, you know, if it's announced that I'm on any questions or question time, before I've even done the programme, there's a kind of huge pylon on social media and the pylon is usually aimed at the presenter of the programme or at the producer of the programme saying, why have you invited this woman on? And OK, I'm allowed to go on and I'm... But can you imagine, you just think, oh, we're not inviting her on again. It's too much like hard work, right? So you have a chilling effect beyond the individual. And I think that is very much the way cancel culture works. If you were a gender-critical young woman at the Royal Holloway, it wasn't that you, you were deprived of hearing me, but you could probably live with that. But what is the lesson you'd learn from that really unpleasant incident that's gone on there and the bullying, and there's been a lot of controversy over it within the college, is you, you, you'd learn the lesson, don't say anything, keep quiet. So self-censorship is probably one of the greatest issues, challenges that we have, because it's not, you can't say how many people were no platform from a university. Often, it's not that many, that's the formal form it takes. But the atmosphere of censoriousness is becoming more pervasive, not, not less. The internet have contributed to this as well, because people will kind of say things like that, they'll pile on to you. I don't think they would do that in real life. Well, I certainly, you'd like to think not. Um, but certainly more people have become aware of you because we have social media and, and, and that amplifies voices and you know it's a kind of modern phenomena that you can have a kind of twitch hunt and you can destroy somebody's reputation and their career just by 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 um you know just 
hundreds of people just suddenly, re, you know, writing horrible things about you. I mean, and those pylons are very unpleasant. And even though I have them fairly regularly, you know, kind of find myself trending every couple of months <laughs> for no reason, if you know what I mean. And no matter how thick-skinned you are, you're kind of reading this stuff and it's like, it's very personal, you know, it's often, it's not about what you think or what you say, it's, it's often vile and, and, and you feel as though you can't answer. So that's the negative. But we also know that's true. And if I'm going to be stick to my guns, right, then words aren't, I can cope, right? Words are not violence, you know, it's not like, as you say, you know, if, if somebody issues you a serious death threat, or, you know, people get rape threats, and that's slightly different. Uh, people being horrible, nasty, I mean, it shows a, a sort of side of uh, personality and, 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 and citizens that I might not like to see. But I also have to remember that there's a converse uh, argument to this, which is that social media has also created huge communities of people in solidarity. And that for every pylon, there's also an opportunity in a democratic sense for people to have a voice people to speak out, to find each other. Um, you know, I went <clears throat> to a talk yesterday and the woman said to me, Claire, it's lovely to see you, and we chatted. And then we realised we'd never met before. <laughs> we already met. We already met on Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I felt as though I knew who she was, and she the same. So I think that um, Karl Marx uses an interesting phrase, which is, you can't, um, you know, you pluck a rose with thorns, and, and you can't pluck a rose without... Uh, encountering those thorns. You know, freedom is not risk-free. Freedom is, if you say you're free, then that means bad things can happen too, as well as good things. So with free speech, it's the same. If you genuinely believe in free speech, you're going to hear things you don't want to hear. And I think that my attitude to some of the uh, behaviour on social media, whilst I find it distasteful and unpleasant, is that I know it's what I have to put up with in order to have a potentially free open square, um, or virtually at least. Lots of free speech in our universities is kind of part of this crumbling of, of Britain's institutions. You see similar things happening in the arts, in civic society. Do you think our, our, our culture is uh, in danger? I think it probably is. I think, as I say, that those twin sort of enemies of, of um, complacency and cowardice are really uh, explain what's happening to our institutions. But I think that there's been a, a crisis of meaning within those institutions for some time, and that the, the I, I mean, it's quite, it's quite uh, uh, complicated to explain it all, but let me just take something like museums as an example. Um, museums, in a way, are a fairly straightforward collection of artifacts which you present to the public, and they come from the 19th century tradition. Actually, they used to be private collections. And then part of a, in the democratic spirit, you made those private collections of rich people who'd go around the world and say, you know, and then kind of pick things up. Mm. <clears throat> um, and then you'd present them. And then you understood increasingly the importance of public education and historically understanding things. And you, you know, you think somewhere like the British Museum or, or even the small local museum. It, oh, I love museums, that's my point. At, at some point, um, particularly in, in actually around the 1980s, but there, there will be earlier argument of 70s, 80s. Um, actually, it was a kind of philistinism that came from Margaret Thatcher at one point. She said, well, what are all these art organisations in museums? What do they do? You know, taxpayers' money, what are they for? And there started to be this sort of more instrumental approach when people, then they, they got defensive in museums. They started saying, well, well uh, we're very... Um, educational, we, 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 we help community building and the rest of it. And when Tony Blair got elected, um, sorry to take it back to this, but they actually then said, yes, arts and culture has to prove its social worth in order to get support from the government. And you've got all of these arts organisations and museums and so on saying, yes, uh, come to our museum, it will help tackle youth unemployment or, you know. I mean, there was, I, I once went to an art exhibition which basically was an art exhibition uh, which, which claimed that it was uh, uh, something that would contribute to lowering teenage pregnancies in the local area. I mean, what on earth you can imagine? So, of course, what that means is you move away from your core mission. That's the point I'm making. You start to, 
you start to forget what your core mission is. And at the same time as that, there's an intellectual assault from the universities, or you know, from academia internationally, on the meaning of, uh, you know, the, the grand narrative, on meanings of anything. And this, so you basically got a collapse in these institutions. People are thinking, well, you know, do I really want to be the head of a museum that uh, contains artifacts that indicate that the UK was once an imperialist power? Maybe not, you know. And at the same time, I'm under pressure to prove my social worth. So what I'm going to do is rehaul this whole museum and relook at everything again, not through its historic importance or in an art gallery through its aesthetic beauty or its importance in the history of art, but through the prism of today and what it means to us today. And so you start relabeling all the artifacts. You even take things away. You start saying, yes, this proves that we were a slave owning, you know, world, you know, in the in the descriptions. Take that photo off the wall. It's misogynist. You know, don't have that up. Is that a slave ship? Oh, my God. Get it off the wall. There's a big, argue, there's a big um, debate going on on this on Radio 4's The Arches, of all things, uh, about removing a picture from a stately home. And so... Um, you, you've got this constant uh, uh, self-analysis all the time. Is this accurate? Is this correct? And I think that, that that loss of meaning and loss of purpose means that the institutions are scrambling around for something. Well, what are we for? right? And there's a convenient set of um, uh, radical campaigning tools that they can turn to. So they suddenly go, well, we might be good for nothing. We might have, be full of self-loathing about our core mission, but we could become a, oh, I don't know, a gender champion. We could lead the world in, in, in introducing, uh, decolonizing artifacts. We could, and so there's a, in some ways, these things fill the vacuum of, of the collapse of a belief in one's own core um, values. And I think in that sense, you say, you know, there is a genuine threat to culture. I mean, it's a bit dark ages like. I mean, if you if you abandon, if institutions abandon what their purpose is, then organising society becomes very difficult to do. And 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 we've we've seen the crisis in everything from the civil service, uh, when civil servants have decided they don't want to be civil servants anymore. And I mean, I might never have wanted to be a civil servant, but the job of a civil servant is to do is yes, is, is to be a civil servant, and is to and to say, you know, you might personally think that the political leader who is uh, your, your boss this year, in preference to the one last year, is an idiot, and you might, you know, in the tea room say that, right? But you do know that your job is to implement what was democratically elected. Well, we know that's not happening at the moment, and we kind of we're not doing that. You know what I mean? At the same time. You've kind of got a civil service that's rife with identity politics meeting groups, and uh, and they they and they and they're actually at the forefront of a lot of these assaults on 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 culture, um, because the civil servants are the people behind the scenes who are working for these institutions very often, because they're often public institutions, and in recent years we've seen major corporations and uh, big business adopt a similar approach. So we're looking at ideological capture in, in corporations and in cultural institutions and basically throughout society that's, that's causing these issues. Yeah, as I say, I think that there's been a vacuum of meaning. That's what, what, what I'm really indicating. You have uh, an absence of belief, a, a real nihilism about the, the, the core uh, mission of any different organization that's part of the post-ideological moment and something has to fill it and i think that there's then uh, a, a set of ideas ideas and ideologies that have been more than willing to rush into the into the gap in the middle and and we're all familiar with them but it is extraordinary to me that you have a situation where just to use an example you know you've got a a national health service which is in crisis in relation to providing health care but has huge swathes of its staff embroiled in um, identity politics effectively and training courses. I, mean, I know people who work in maternity for example who um, for viewers the maternity service is in a real mess at the moment. There's been absolute scandals about uh, people's children, babies dying uh, about neglect. That's their job, right? You, you know, 
do maternity leave. You know, the baby should be born or the mother has to live. That's part of the modern health service. And I know some young uh, maternity nurses and people who work as midwives, and they're all being sent on training courses in how not to use the term breastfeeding, how to reorganise their language. You just think, Senator, what are you doing? I mean, you know, who cares about that? You know, you're going to get disciplined for saying chest feeders, but somehow up the road there's a hospital where babies have died because of the poor maternity, and that's not as important as that. This is the way that we uh, live. Well, similarly, we'll have major corporations where, you know, the last year, um, I think it was, Halifax Bank, um, there was a big campaign that they did about wearing pronouns. And there was effectively, uh, their staff would wear pronouns. They went on social media. They said, anyone who didn't agree with this, leave the bank. You know, we don't want customers like you. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to say. Um, and, you know, you must respect the pronoun. Well, I mean, you would be absolutely lucky if you could find a Halifax Bank branch that was open. Because at the same time that they're having this big campaign, they're closing down their branches. You can't get customer service, when, you know. And there's a crisis, which is that banks and, 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 and building societies are not helping people get through the cost of living crisis. So, and so on and so forth. So the point I'm making is what you're meant to be doing over there should engage you and be the main thing that you focus on doing as a good job. Instead, you're distracted but passionate about these ideological campaigns. And uh, in that sense, they've been captured, but also because the grown-ups in the room have left. And so the final thing I'll say on this is I gave a talk to a, a, a group of senior financial leaders uh, a few years ago, on, and they asked me to speak on cancel culture. And they were absolutely, you know, they said it's a breath of fresh air. They were delighted to hear it. And I went through the problems of woke capitalism and these kind of issues and why they needed to uh, um, take a stand on it. And they said, oh, it's absolutely brilliant what you said. But what can we do? Because, you know, if we challenge some of our young staff, you know, we'll get into trouble. And I said, you run British banking. I mean, don't make out. You know, have a bit of courage, but they won't. And it's one of the the things that we all have to understand is that um, there is the emergence of a, a, a kind of power grab around these issues, which is the most the most junior member of staff, if they set up the LGBTQ plus group, can actually have a disproportionate amount of power in a major institution whether it's a corporate or a public institution, because they can be the people who determine the rules of the game of how you work. And they know that this chief executive is frightened of them, because if they lead some campaign at calling somebody out as a bigot, then that's actually going to cause trouble that they don't want. And so cowardice sets in, and they kind of... They, 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 because you, if everybody just said, enough of this already, right? we're not doing this, because most people don't buy into it, then you would be able to fight back, but they won't do it. They're frightened. So moving from these uh, big ideas to talk more about you. So you became Baroness Fox of Buckley in 2020, but you, you said you want the House of Lords to be abolished. But can you tell us why you accepted this um, peerage from an institution that you don't agree with? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question, and I still to this minute don't know if I did the right thing. I, I wasn't expecting to be offered a peerage. I do think that the uh, having a second legislative chamber that's unelected uh, is anti-democratic, a complete uh, affront to democracy. And now that I'm there, I actually think that even more because, you know, I, I, I feel as though those unelected peers have a disproportionate influence on the laws of the making laws of this land. Um, and we're answerable to nobody. And everybody's been appointed and, you know, it's it makes no sense in any democratic form. And I was particularly concerned during the Brexit years that the House of Lords had really acted as a barrier and, and as a block. It, uh, actively, we're saying they're going to block the referendum results of 2016. They caused chaos in relation to refusing to accept voted for uh, um, uh, um, laws from the House of Commons and so on and so forth. So I kind of particularly despised what they had become. 
uh, even though I didn't agree with them in principle. So then you think, oh, I get a phone call, would you like to be? I was like, don't be ridiculous. And the person who phoned me up uh, from number 10, who, who was anonymous, I don't know who it was, I was in such a state of shock, I thought I was being set up by some, you know, radio prankster. Okay, but they, they, they did start off by saying, we know that you don't, we know that you want to abolish powers of laws and we're, you know, fair enough type thing. So they kind of, and you're to listen rather than say anything. So I, unusual for me. So they kind of gave me the motivation for why I should do it and gave me a few weeks to think about it. So why did I accept it? Well, first of all, their motivations were, were, were interesting because although I was appointed by, um, I mean, it was under Boris Johnson, so, you know, effectively I got my page from Boris Johnson. They weren't in any way, protect they knew I wasn't going to be a Conservative supporter of the Conservative Party in the House of Lords, and I'm not. Um, but they, they argued that I, that, that, you know, there was a lot of people who voted for Brexit who had then gone on to vote for Boris Johnson, but who were not natural Conservatives, and that they wanted to acknowledge the role of kind of more left-leaning Brexiteers like myself. So I think that we can safely say that me, um, Kate Hoey and Geezer Stewart in particular represented that wing. And they were sort of saying, so you're doing it for the voters. Now, you know, I'm not an idiot, I know. But there was something in it. And certainly people felt like it was a kind of acknowledgement of a kind of, you know, that red wall Brexiteer. Uh, a lot of people from the Northwest where I'd been a Brexit party MEP were delighted on my, you know, they felt like they had their, their girl in the House of Lords. So, and the other thing is that um, they acknowledge the work of the Academy of Ideas and the work of the Battle of Ideas in, in creating an atmosphere, uh, this was the number 10 person, in um, encouraging free speech and open debate. And they said they wanted that spirit to be brought into the House of Lords. And that they, I, th I suspect that they regret it more than I do. Now, I, I, why did I take it? Because I, I thought, well, maybe it will just give me a bigger platform in order to be able to argue what I believe, um, which is what I've tried to do. But it's a perfectly reasonable accusation that I'm a hypocrite. I understand that. And history, I want to say history will show me. I don't mean to be grandiose about it. I mean, history might be indifferent. I, I simply mean it was a judgment call. I, I still don't know if it was the right judgment call. I take it quite seriously. I didn't realize how much hard work it would be, to be honest. And I hate reading law. I can't, I'm no good at it. Um, but I do take it seriously because I feel if I'm there, I should be a working peer and I work hard at it, as well as running the Academy of Ideas. And I also try and raise things in the House of Lords that would never be raised unless I said them. I try and, you know, not not fit in and meld, but, but say what I believe. Um, and I'm not in a party, so I'm not affiliated, so I don't have whips telling me what to vote for or what to say. Um, and... That's the way I use it. I also made a rather, um, a kind of a, a rather feeble attempt at democratic accountability by saying, every speech that I do, I will put on social media, and publish. And every week, I do a little vlog. Uh, I think that's what you call it, video blog, um, called Inside the Lords, when I try and explain what's happened that week. You know, just 10, 15 minutes, so people will get a sense. Because actually, people don't realise. How important the House of Lords is, I don't want people to have to sit and listen, watch Parliament channel all the time. But whereas you have to focus on the Commons, actually, the, the, a lot of the laws get changed in the Lords, and, and people should know what's going on. So I try and do that, some sort of sense of democratic accountability to the public. I realise that that's a rather faux democracy. Um, but actually, people seem to find it useful, and, and I can't do that. And I, and you know, usual thing, but you know, now we've got a Substack, and that goes out to people. People will actually stop me, so I thought it was really interesting what they did with that bill. And a pop me is thinking, who are you? And what do you mean? And it's because they watch my Inside the Lords or they've seen the speech. Yeah. And I think that the part of opening up politics, and I mean with not politics, big P politics, so much as that, that sense to go back to where we started, you know, with debate and discussion is people need to be informed, people need to be involved, they need to be treated as equal citizens, right? And I just have... I'm lucky that I'm in the House of Lords, but I'm just a citizen of this country, right? And my views are no more valid than anyone else's. And if I can, if I can use being in the House of Lords to, to kind of, you know, try and reflect the views of people who will never have the opportunity that I have to say that, then all to the better. And those people who are perfectly entitled to, 
shout me down as well. So I, I just think it's it's part of opening politics up to to the public square up to have this sort of sense of town hall meetings, discussion everywhere. And I want the House of Lords not to be a closed endeavour, but to be opened up. One funny thing is that um, the I'm not I'm not entirely popular within the House of Lords, but I am popular with the social media team. And the reason for that is because I started this, it's kind of encouraged everyone else to do it. So now loads of people from the Lords put up their speeches. Yep. Lots of people are kind of doing much more public facing because when I went in, one thing that really struck me was this was a, a chamber of people who believed that they were they were the philosopher kings, you know. We are the experts. We know best. And they still talk like that. But they had no sense of anyone what, what, looking in at all. It's all entirely internally orientated. And I think that they now know that I'm going to say something, put it on social media. It's much more self Anyway, people do it. And I think that's to the good. I mean, there are often people who speeches I disagreed with when they did them, but I think we should see those as well. So, yeah. You're from a very left-leaning background. All those people on the left saying, oh, she's part of the corporate right. Uh, I think there's people on the right saying, oh, this, this lefty has somehow entered the establishment. Uh, I get the feeling you don't care about the labels as long as you have the platform. Um, but do you feel that this whole left and right labelling thing is kind of not as useful in, in our society? I don't think it is that useful. I, 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 I don't like it when people call me right wing, only because I think that they're usually trying to do it to delegitimise me, which is not fair because you're, it's perfectly legitimate to be right wing if you are right wing. Um, but I know that it's often used as a way of kind of dismissing me by, by my people on the left, you know. And of course, we've now got to a stage where, you know, as soon as you're the right, you're the far right, and then you're fascist, right? So that's a kind of uh, tactic that's used. So I kind of emphasise my left leaning, my left background, and because I, that's the way I, you know, I'm old now, so I, you know, kind of that's where I come from. That's my, that's where I identify. I should be allowed to. Um, but the label isn't that useful. It, it is absolutely true. You know, left or right, it's like uh, it doesn't describe the ideological um, uh, splits that drove those labels in the past. There was a very real sense of what left wing meant and what right wing meant. Whereas I actually think at the moment that that we have more important labels, as it were. Um, uh, you know, whether you're pro or for pro or anti free speech, or you know, what's your attitude to freedom and these kind of things, right? So I just don't think it works. And when you were saying about, you know, that part of the, you know, that a lot of people on the left were saying part of the corporate establishment. And the corporate establishment is quite interesting because I, I got a shock when I realised this. Because I actually am enthusiastic about economic development and growth, which, by the way, if anyone knows their Marx will know that, that was, that's a Marxist position, which something else, right? Um, there's nothing, you know, it's not just a Marxism, it's obviously, it's, it's, also, a, 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 it's also a free market position, I'm just making the point. Um, um, the, the left actually recognise you have to have a bigger cake, you know, it's not just redistribution, you have to create more, you just think that people are not fairly treated in the creation of that wealth, but you need more wealth in order to have more leisure, you know, if you're kind of ploughing the land as a peasant, farmer right you know using a, a, a mule and, and, and gathering that you haven't got any time to go to an art gallery never mind excess wealth in order to do it so economic development has been a positive thing for humanity this shouldn't this would never have been a controversial thing to say when I was young right but why is it controversial now ah environmentalism so a new ideological kids arrived on the block right and, and environmentalism as an ideology says that economic development and growth is evil and is destroyed, uh, you know, the things that matter, like nature. I mean, it's not true as it happens, but I'm just saying that's their argument. And so if you are then saying, well, I believe in economic growth, they go, oh, you're in the pay of big business, right, et cetera, et cetera. You're part of the corporate establishment. And I think that's an extraordinary shift, and it shows you why those labels no longer work. It's also the case that what's ironic about it is that half of the, you know, corporations have bought into environmentalism, right? So it's not like, so the big business are pro-eco-nihilism uh, 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 and, 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 and very sort of environmentally, into the environmentalist uh, uh, ideological norms. And I'm not, but somehow I'm the corporate one. I mean, what happened there? 
And uh, in the House of Lords, it's extraordinary. Um, it's like sitting in a kind of Extinction Rebellion meeting half of the time because there's so many people in the House of Lords who are enthusiastic about environmentalism. I mean, they never shut up about it. And there's this group called Peers for the Planet. I mean, God, Peers for the Planet. They're, every time anyone's like, I represent Peers for the Planet. And the, the significant thing about Peers for the Planet is it's all parties. So there's as many Conservative Party members, Lib Dems, Crossbench, uh, uh, Labour, of course. And then sometimes some of us are a little more sceptical of these truisms that just uh, are constantly reiterated. Stand up and then they say, oh, you know, you apologists for capitalist growth and you don't care about animals and you don't care about, you know, you know, you want sewage in the rivers. You know, these kind of gross characters, ridiculous. But, but I realised that, well, if every single party here, left, right and middle, are pro-environmentalist, what is the point of those labels, right? So you're either, you know, completely buy into environmentalist ideology, you're allowed to do that. I mean, I'm not arguing against it. But there is a different approach to uh, development and progress, which I hope that I represent, that is not so pessimistic about human endeavour, thinks we can solve these problems, by the way, you know, thinks that technology uh, and science can actually solve any problems that we create through any progress that we've made, that, um, of course, uh, you know, once you've invented the car, there'll be people who are killed by cars. But that doesn't mean that cars should be banned because they're killers, right? You, you make them safer and so on and so forth. Of course, uh, once you've invented the aeroplane, uh, there'll be car crashes, uh, plane crashes occasionally. There will be a cost to pay. But isn't it wonderful that people are no longer confined to their local village, that they can, you know, that, that parochialism is no longer a way of life for many people. They are allowed, ordinary people can travel and see the world and go to other places. These are things worth defending, right? These are a wonderful gain. But every gain, as I said, roses and thorns, everything has a downside. And what you do is you then use human ingenuity to solve the problems of the downside. You don't cancel the great, brilliant uh, things that we've gained from it. Claire Fox, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders.